take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, as uh, Lord willing, we round out chapter 7 of Solomon's studies on the vanity of life, beginning to read in verse 15 today, reading to the end of the chapter in verse 29. That begins on page 556 of our cart Bibles. If you were paying attention during our New Testament reading, you heard Paul uh, warned Timothy that in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, slanderous, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. The list continues. Uh, and Paul seems to be speaking there about particular difficulties and an increased time uh, where people will grow in their sins. But what we're going to see today in Ecclesiastes, is that that's not exactly a new thing. Uh, this reveals all our sinfulness and puts us in that list somewhere that Paul gives to Timothy as Solomon begins to speak about uh, we who have been made upright but sought out many schemes. Today, chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read to the end, verse 29 of Ecclesiastes. Before we read this word together, ask you to join me again in a word of prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing on our study. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, indeed your word is that double-edged sword which lays us bare, and we pray that as we come before this word today, you would do your uh, surgical work in our souls. Uh, we pray that you would open us up, show us our sin. Lord, not to leave us there, not to leave us in our schemes and our devices and our iniquity, but to draw us to the hope that is to be found in Jesus Christ, the one who came and was incarnate uh, and for our salvation laid down his life and took it up again in resurrection. We pray that you would help us to see him and rejoice in him and help us to see our sin as a means of turning to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that not withhold your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. Uh, in 2008, uh, a man by the name of Josh Guthrie graduated from my alma mater from Geneva College. And he graduated with a degree in aviation and a dream of becoming a missionary pilot. Josh was inspired by the sacrifice of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley and Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming and those men who were speared to death in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956. And he too, Josh also wanted to fly into remote villages and carry the message of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard the gospel before. Well, he graduated uh, and took a job as a youth pastor in a local church and began applying to programs. It was nearly two years, January of 2010, when he was accepted into a program to begin training with an organization called ITEC, the mission organization founded by Steve Saint, the son of one of those Ecuador Five. On April 18, 2010, during a routine training flight, Josh, Josh's plane crashed just 15 seconds after takeoff, and the Lord called Josh home rather than sending him into the mission field. And I bet you can think of your own examples of the same sort of thing. Not just young people, but young people serving the Lord. And their lives cut short. Missionary dreams never materialize. Families crushed and grieving. You can think, if you just jog your memory about situations and stories you've heard that follow the same lines. And again, you can think of Examples on the other side of the fence, too, can't you? Criminals and scoundrels who live to a ripe old age and die softly in their beds. In the same year that Josh Guthrie died, Leroy Nash was the oldest American prisoner on death row. He was first imprisoned at age 15. His rap sheet included armed robbery, multiple attempted murders, uh, attempted murder of a police officer, and at least one homicide. He died of natural causes in February 2010 at the age of 94. But why do things work out that way? Why did Joseph Stalin live to be 74 while Jim Elliott died at 28? Solomon says he's seen it too. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And with that observation, Solomon sets up the tension that introduces the entire passage. Why does life work like that? Why isn't God's justice more predictable in this life? Why can't we guarantee a long, happy life by living wisely, by living righteously? Now, last week, we answered a similar question by turning to humility before the sovereignty of God. Verse 13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Well, today, rather than talking so much about God's sovereignty, Solomon wants to show us our sin. He wants to speak about our depravity, and yet the answer is the same. As it has been from the beginning, as it will be to the end of Ecclesiastes, the call of wisdom is to learn the fear of the Lord, to humble ourselves before him. And today we're going to see that lesson uh, by learning something about our righteousness 
by learning something about our sin, and finally by learning something about our God. Those are three headings today, our righteousness, our sin, and our God. Solomon begins by teaching us that our righteousness is empty. Solomon says he has seen the good dying young and the bad living long, and it's supposed to be startling when we read that. That's why he begins by saying, I've seen everything. It's like when your kids come into the room and say, you won't believe it. Oh, really? It's supposed to catch us off guard when we see uh, the wor world working this way that he, uh, he explains in verse 15. And that's because as you read the Old Testament, particularly when you read the Psalms and the wisdom books, it is filled, chock full with, uh, with teaching about what we call divine retribution. It's the idea that what you sow, so shall you reap. Uh, the almost universal pattern that those who obey the Lord live long, prosperous, blessed lives. Think of Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4. The man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water which uh, does, not, uh, does not wither, it, it yields its fruit, its season. In all that he does, he prospers, but the wicked not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. That's the basic pattern. That's the normative teaching about how life works best. But Solomon's bumping up against what we sometimes see. A life that doesn't fit the pattern we expect. It's not an observation that's unique to Solomon or to Ecclesiastes. In fact, all the book of Job almost. Uh, Job and his three companions are still struggling with this same issue. Psalm 37, Psalm 73 are devoted to the question of what should we think about the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the saints. And so Solomon isn't the first one to find this glitch in the matrix, but he, he does turn us to two of the typical traps that we can fall into when we observe unexpected things happening in God's creation. Two false answers. One, uh, one trap is to think that we can be the ones to crack the code that will unlock God's blessing. The other false trap is to think uh, that if this is how life works, what's the point of serving God in the first place? He answers these in turn, verses 16 and 7. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? That's a strange thing uh, to read in the scriptures. It sounds like Solomon is telling us, don't put too much effort toward holiness. Don't worry so much about whether you're, you've got right standing in God's sight. Maybe you should just lighten up a little bit. Take life, take religion, take spirituality easy. Actually, uh, in reality, he is warning us against a kind of hyper-religiosity, the kind of uh, legalism that imagines that we can work hard enough to put God in our debt. There's a kind of wisdom that attempts to wrestle the good things out of life by sheer force. And Jesus dealt with the same issue when he was in his earthly ministry. And so he told the people who were listening to his Sermon on the Mount that unless their righteousness exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. And can you imagine the response of the people who heard that word? Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Can you believe it? They are the holiest people we know. They keep all the rules. They do all the right things. There's no way we can ever be more righteous than them. That there's a kind of righteousness that isn't righteous. 
There's a kind of righteousness of pride that imagines that so long as we tithe our mint and our dill and our cumin, so long as we keep the outward rules of God to the nth degree, then we have a right to demand good things from God. And if he doesn't deliver those things in two days with free shipping right to our door, just like Amazon, then we can lodge a formal complaint. And Solomon is telling us, don't waste your time. God's blessings aren't some equation that you can solve if you only try hard enough, you only calculate enough. He's not telling us that our or he's telling us that our, our wisdom and our righteousness are not levers long enough to move the whole world. He's telling us that we're only going to wear ourselves out pursuing something that can't be caught. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but if God's going to do what he wants then, if we might die young, we, we might as well live for today. We might as well live for ourselves then. We might as well do whatever we want because what's the sense in serving God if it doesn't guarantee a good outcome? Not so fast. Uh, actually, Solomon does agree with this divine retribution, and so he warns us in verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Actually, abject wickedness has its own punishments very often. Sometimes those punishments are baked into these sins that we're pursuing. Sometimes they come later, much later. Sometimes they come in slow and cancerous ways that we, we can't even connect in this life. And we wonder, maybe this person got off without judgment. But as a rule, wickedness drags destruction in its shadow. There are exceptions, especially in this life, but more often than not, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and those who go looking for trouble will find it. I don't have any hard data, but I'd be willing to wager that drug pushers and gangbangers and pimps and junkies have a higher likelihood of an early death than all you keyboard jockeys sitting out there. Now, those are actually the kinds of sins that it seems like Ecclesiastes 7 is warning us against. Be not overly wicked. There's a run-of-the-mill wickedness that we all know, and then there's the kind of people that we watch documentaries about, you know, the kind of people who have a disdain for God and his ways that decide if all I have is today, I might as well jump off the deep end. I might as well pursue whatever gives me the most intense pleasure and the greatest authority, whatever helps me to have the best thrill before it's all over. That's what I'm going after. I'm going to be overly wicked. I will abound in wickedness. I will pursue everything that my heart desires. Oh, but the one who fears the Lord will escape from both of them. Verse 18 tells us. The fear of the Lord allows us to hold the line between thinking that our sin is harmless on the one hand and thinking that our righteousness comes with a money-back guarantee on the other. If anyone could have guaranteed a good outcome through righteousness, it would have been our Lord Jesus. And yet he lost his life early. He was cut down at 33 years old, crucified by the Romans in the prime of his life. Why? Was it because he was wicked or foolish? Absolutely not. He was cut down early because we're wicked, <laughs> because we're foolish. His life was given as a sacrifice because our iniquity has real consequences and he, he was executed on our behalf because none of us possess a righteousness that's sufficient to demand the least little blessing from the hand of God. 
He became a sacrifice for sinners to teach us the fear of the Lord and to convince us that all our righteousness is empty. That's the first lesson Solomon wants us to see, that our righteousness is empty. The second lesson is like it, that our sin is everywhere. Our sin is everywhere. Now, if, uh, if verse 16 sounded strange to you, verse 19 is what you expect. This is the wisdom that we uh, think to see in the scriptures. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. That's straightforward. Wisdom fortifies the one who has it. We could search the Proverbs, find a dozen other lines just like it. We could all sit around and ponder the, the limitless value of wisdom for living an upright and godly life. And just as we're about to get excited about verse 19... He hits us with verse 20. And it's supposed to be a balance here. He tempers our excitement with the reality of our sin. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is what we could call the pervasiveness of our depravity. I wanted to call it the pervasity, but Google didn't like that. The pervasiveness of our depravity, the idea that our sin is everywhere. There is no one who is untouched. There's no aspect of our lives that hasn't been affected. And if we're paying attention, we recognize that there's an overlap between our sin and our lack of wisdom. What did verse 17 say? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. They're put into the same category. They're at least kept on the same shelf in the pantry. They go together because one of the first things that sin does in our lives is that it corrupts our wisdom. I'm not a Trekkie, but I know enough about the original Star Trek to know that Spock was the man of rationality. He was a Vulcan, and so he followed logic uh, completely, even when his logic meant that it was a disadvantage to him. And that character straight strikes us as so peculiar because it is completely opposite of the way that most of us work in the world. Even if you're one of those engineers who, who's like a borderline Vulcan, even you don't do this. Even your wisdom is tainted by your own sin, your own self-seeking. What do we do? We justify our behaviors. We rationalize our decisions because we're trying to make life easy or comfortable because we're trying to get things for ourselves. Thankfully, we don't always do it absolutely. Thankfully, the Lord gives His Holy Spirit so that we grow in sanctification, we grow in selflessness, but we still struggle with this pull to twist our wisdom to suit ourselves. So verse 20 is a warning. Don't put your ultimate hope in your ability to pursue wisdom. Not because wisdom is bad, but because we're bad at wisdom. Because our sin is everywhere and it corrupts our wisdom. And this also explains the language about Solomon's search for a unifying theory of everything. Verse 25, he says, I turn my heart to know and search and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. That last phrase, the scheme of things, that comes from the world of accounting. It means that Solomon's hoping to balance the books. He wants to put out a mental spreadsheet of all of human history where every row and every column is accounted for, where every cause and effect can be aligned, where he can lay his head on his pillow at night and say, I figured out how the world works and why some die this time and some live that way and some prosper and some don't. But he can't do it. Verse 28, he says, his soul has sought repeatedly but he's not plumbed the depths. Verse 23, I said, I will be wise. He's determined, I will do it. And he says, it was far from me. 
It's impossible. It's impossible to seek out the scheme of things. It's impossible in part because Solomon is finite, but it's also impossible because, like you, he's a sinner. And our sin corrupts our wisdom. Our sin also sours our speech. Verses 21 and 22 are a perfect demonstration of how true verse 20 is. There is no one who doesn't sin, and if you want proof, just listen up. Open your ears, loosen your tongue. Our sin is as close as the words that we say every day and the things that people say about us. Solomon warns us, and I think it's actually a pretty uh, startling thing coming from a king. It's a little bit of self-awareness, the kind of thing that we sometimes lack. The, uh, the king in the ancient days, if you said a word about the king, you'd better have your affairs in order because it was going to cost you your life if it was reported. But here's Solomon saying, don't listen too closely. You know what other people think. You know the way people say things, and you know it because you've done the same thing. Don't take it to heart. If you listen to too much, you're going to hear something that you wish you hadn't. In, uh, in Judy Bloom's book, otherwise known as Sheila the Great, now there's this believable little episode of a group of schoolgirls sharing their unvarnished thoughts about one another at a sleepover. It was supposed to be an anonymous exercise. Each girl gets a sheet of paper uh, to write their, their thoughts about the other girls, and, and they uh, list out all of their evaluations in the categories of hair, face, body, brain, best thing, worst thing. You see, Mouse explained, we'd never be brave enough to just sit around and tell each other the truth about ourselves. That would be too embarrassing. But since everybody wants to know what other people really think of them, this is an easy way to find out. And you don't need me to tell you how that chapter ends. You can imagine that those responses didn't remain anonymous. And within a few minutes, each one of the girls is furious at the others. And maybe if they had only read Ecclesiastes, they would have been a little wiser. Don't listen too much. You know things get said. Solomon's not encouraging gossip. He's not telling us just to go ahead and say things anyway. He's, he's not downplaying how hurtful other people's words can be sometimes. He is simply acknowledging that, you know what? Everybody says sinful things. And you know that because you've done it too. And if you overhear words about yourself that sting, it's best to have that self-awareness. Only most of the time we're not self-aware. Most of the time we're self-deceived by our indwelling sin. And so again, we, we justify, we use our tainted wisdom to tell ourselves that when we make evaluations and criticisms about other people, we're being helpful or we're being truthful or we're just, uh, we're just seeing it like it is. But when they make their evaluations and their criticisms against us, well, they're vindictive. They're malicious. They don't know who we really are. If they knew who we really were, they'd think better of us. Really? Oh, James chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body, but not us. Our sin is everywhere. It corrupts our wisdom. It sours our speech. It also poisons our relationships. Now, in verses 25 to 29, Solomon is on his quest to systematize existence, to know, search out, and, and find out the scheme of things, and ultimately he fails, but he says, there are a few things I found. One, he says, verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, 26, 
verse 26, he says, I found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Solomon's not speaking about women in general, but he is speaking about one kind of a woman. He's talking about the seductress. He's talking about the wily woman from Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7 who who uses uh, her eyelashes and her words and her body to get what she thinks she needs to get ahead in the world. In Proverbs, the man who is foolish enough to go along with her is like an ox being led to slaughter, like a man taking fire into his own lap, hoping that he won't be burned. Now, as you hear these words, I bet you can also hear already in the back of your mind the voice of the world clapping back at Solomon. Today, what Solomon says would be categorized as slut-shaming, right? We'd call it victim-blaming. Who is Solomon to stand there and and tell this woman who she can and cannot have sex with? With all of his male privilege, Solomon is the last person who ought to be giving this advice. Because today we've taken sexual promiscuity and we've lumped it into the category of female empowerment. Proof that a woman can thrive in a man's world. Solomon is an equal opportunity preacher. Keep reading verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. There's our pervasive sin again. This isn't victim blaming. It takes two, as they say. And the man who wants what he ought not to have is the one who will be snared in these relationships that turn out for gratification rather than self-sacrifice. And yes, we can reverse the roles if we want to. There are plenty of men who who lie in wait to take advantage of women for their own gain. There are plenty of women who are sinful enough to want what seems pleasurable rather than what God says is good and in its proper place. The point of this verse directs us again all the way back to that first sin in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, to the woman God said, your desire shall be against or for or over. Your desire shall be against your husband, and he will rule over you. Whatever other lessons you want to take from that verse, at the very least, it shows us that sin is at the foundation of the breakdown of our relationship. What should have been a covenant in marriage becomes a combat. You have the woman trying to usurp the man. You have the man tending to, to, uh, to domineer over the woman. So no wonder in our modern world, sexual rhetoric is seen as a power struggle. Because in the hands of sinful men and women, that's often what it becomes. A way to prove ourselves or or a way to keep others down. Why is it that in every spy movie, the hero who can't be captured by the bunch of goons with guns can be taken in by a woman with long legs? That's all it takes, right? And it's a trope, but it's a trope for a reason. Why is it that throughout history, powerful men like Solomon himself like to flex their authority and their power by collecting sexual partners like baseball cards? Why is it that in our culture, the cardinal, unforgivable sin in the eyes of the world is not the killing of the unborn, but rather the audacity to tell people that sex should be restricted to heterosexual monogamous marriage? Why do we operate that way? It's because relationships, and sexual ones in particular, are one of the ways, the cardinal ways, that sinful humanity measures itself. So, if you infringe upon my sexual freedom, you're doing violence against my person. And we throw off every taboo, except the taboo of having taboos, 
but are we any happier that way? Are we any safer that way? Are we any holier that way? No. And sin has poisoned our relationships. That may be a clue to help us decipher that slightly more difficult saying in verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. The obvious question here is, what do you mean? Uh, what are you looking for? What kind of a person are you searching for, Solomon? If you've got the NIV, you notice in front of you that it adds the idea of uprightness to this, which might be the right idea, even though it's not in the Hebrew. So the NIV says, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. That might be the right idea. If that's the case, it means something like, among all the people that Solomon has ever met, only one in a thousand men is relatively righteous, and all the women were zeros. And if that's what this means, then we ought to consider the source. This is not the Bible's final word on women. This is Solomon's word, though. This is what he found. As one commentator said, it might have been a better idea if Solomon cast his net a little narrower than to a thousand. Right? He had a notoriously bad relationship with a whole harem of godless women who led him in the wrong direction, and so maybe he's a little oversensitive here when we come to this point. Maybe. Maybe, though, Solomon is quoting the conventional wisdom of his day, like a proverb. Like Paul writing to, to Titus, his other protege. Titus is there on the island of Crete, and he is, uh, he's getting things ready. He's establishing a ministry, and Paul writes, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In the next verse, he says, this testimony is true. <laughs> and the only way you can read that without choking on it is if you're not from Crete. So maybe he's quoting the conventional wisdom. Then again, maybe... Solomon's simply telling us like it is. And we're so busy stumbling over what might sound sexist to our modern ears that we miss the fact that Solomon's not saying anything very nice about anybody here. Right? So what if he has found one man who's relatively good among a thousand and no women? That means that even that one man is still condemned by verse 20. It means that even the one-tenth of one percent is still covered by verse 29 that says he's also sought out many schemes. At the end of the day, verse 28, like the point of the rest of this passage, is to show us again that our sin is everywhere. There's no one that is untouched. There's no aspect of our lives that hasn't been affected. Our sin corrupts our wisdom. It sours our speech. It poisons our relationships. Now, what can we do then? We can walk in the fear of the Lord. And this last lesson that uh, Solomon gives us, that in spite of our empty righteousness and in spite of our ever-present sin, our God is perfect. Our righteousness is empty and our sin is everywhere, but our God is perfect. And after all his work to fit the puzzle pieces together, Solomon says he's really only made one significant contribution to the picture. Verse 29, see, he says, this alone I have found. This alone, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, the only way to make sense of this inexplicable world we live in, where, where things happen that we don't understand why or how or when, 
The only way to make sense of it is simply to listen by faith to what the Lord has already told us about ourselves. Isn't it amazing that our modern, contemporary model of humanity believes exactly one-third of the truth that Solomon is giving us in this passage, in this verse at least. The modern model of man uh, believes that man is upright. They believe in the inherent goodness of man, even though it's maybe buried somewhere deep in his materialistic heart, they believe that man is essentially good. They don't believe that man's been created good, and they don't believe that man has gone fundamentally wrong. But it's true, mistakes have been made, but those are just minor course corrections. We're really trending in the direction of something greater. So it may be that humanity needs more education. Maybe that we need less religion. Could be that we need greater resources. We might need better government. We might need more advanced technology. Maybe we need to get back to nature. Maybe we need to take deeper breaths. Maybe we need to do better drugs. But whatever it is, there is no human problem that humanity can't solve, given enough time and enough ingenuity. Actually, we're okay, aren't we? But Solomon has shown us enough that we don't have to believe that lie. Man has sought out many schemes, he says. No one is righteous. Not one. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And that's why the preacher turns us to our creator. God made man upright. Derek Kidner writes that those words, God made man upright, are already enough to call into question the refrain of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. In other words, when we think about this truth, when we meditate on it, hidden in this truth about, about man's first creation is the hope of our recreation in righteousness just as we were at the beginning, maybe even better than we were. At the beginning, Kidner continues, he says, since futility was not the first word about the world, it no longer has to be the last. God made man upright. Here's where we have to go beyond Solomon. We have to leave Ecclesiastes to find the hope of the gospel. We have to set our eyes on the only exception to the rule of verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Actually, there was one. There's Jesus Christ, the righteous, the new man, the second Adam, the spotless lamb of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his lips. That means he was the perfect man. He was able to bridle his tongue. He was able to keep his entire body in check. He was the only one with a righteousness that could be counted by the Father as something positive rather than something vacuous. And the Bible tells us that by faith, his righteousness can be ours. That his uprightness can be credited to our account. It doesn't mean that life's tragedies don't sometimes take us off guard. It, it doesn't mean that we won't be surprised sometimes when those that we think are good die rather young. But it does mean that our God is perfect. It does mean that his salvation is true. It does mean that even through our deepest losses and our strongest heartaches, even in the face of our overwhelming sin, we can walk in the fear of the Lord. 
we can trust that he's leading us in the right direction all the way to himself. We can walk in the fear of the Lord, even in the face of our depravity and our sin, because he sent his son to overcome our sin, to prepare a place to take us to where he is, that we may be with him and see him as he is. Let's walk in humility and the fear of the Lord, seeing and looking to him, our Savior. Let's pray together. Glorious, righteous Savior, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We thank you, Son, for being born of a woman. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for raising him again from the dead and giving us faith in our hearts. Help us to believe. Help us to walk in humility. Help us to fear you. Help us to turn to you and not to ourselves, not to our righteousness, not to any work of our hands. Help us to receive and to rejoice in all that you have done and provided for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.